Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, EM Guidewire fans and family. It's great to be with you all again, coming to you from the Annex Studio of the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, well, it's not an annex studio. It's still my closet, just trying to be fancy. Um, While I look around, I I think my wife has actually purchased some new clothing. Well, I guess that's expected. Impromptu purchases is certainly a side effect of being isolated at home with your kids. This episode, we're going to continue with our reproduction of the EM conference from our emergency medicine educational series. This time, pediatric emergency medicine expert and extraordinary human Dr. Emily McNeil will help enlighten us on some of the challenges we are facing as a community when considering how this pandemic is adversely affecting specific at-risk populations in our areas. So without further delay, Dr. McNeil. Can you guys hear me now okay? Yes, we can. And that is a very ominous title. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know where you live. Intentional. Intentional. Okay, I'm going to try and see the chat too, so I can, can somebody type something to me so I can see if I can read it? No? Cool. Okay. Hi. Hey, guys. All right. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, vulnerable populations in the COVID-19 era, or what I would like to call, what happens when a disease management system crashes into a public health crisis? I want this, I want you to send me questions as you have them. Um, I've been involved in what feels like thousands of system level conversations around this. And I would like to give you the perspective of what I'm experiencing and the conversations we're having. So, cause that never gets translated down to you. And I think it can breed a sense of what are we doing? We're not doing anything. Um, how are we helping at risk populations? And that's, that's not true. There's a lot of issues that come up with this, but I just wanted to share with you what we've, what we've learned. Okay. Now, Okay, I have nothing to gain um, from this lecture, no financial disclosures. We're gonna talk about, I'm gonna give you a disclaimer because I think it's very important whenever you hear somebody talk about uh, public health approaches to system levels, you have to know what what biases they have. And I wanna share with you mine so that you know from what perspective my conversation is coming. uh, coming. We're gonna talk about who is vulnerable and why, what are we doing about it at the system level, and what are we supposed to do about it in the emergency department? So what is my disclaimer? This is not a political discussion. I want this to be sound more like a policy discussion. I am not a policy wonk. I am not a politician. Um, what I view myself as is someone who spends a lot of time thinking about effects of different policy. I don't want to make the policy, but I'm really good at telling you where it's going to fall short and how we need to, how, what we need to address. I think that public health and most things when it comes to society boil down from in your perspective as to who is a B person and who is a hive person. So what do I mean by that? Everybody, humans are generally altruistic. Humans generally want to make, um, make the world a better place. People have very different perspectives on how that should go. And they also have a tendency to think that their way is the best way and that everybody else's way is, um, is detrimental. We are probably naturally temperamentally 
born skewed to be either a hive person or a bee person. Um, and what I want to explain today is that both are equally vital. Um, you can't have a bee, you can't have bees if your hive infrastructure has crumbled. Likewise, your hive doesn't work if your bees aren't working well. I, as you might have guessed by working with me, am a bee person. That's why I went into emergency medicine. I care about each individual bee. I wanna help all the bees. I wanna know which bees are at risk, who is struggling in their hive. And if we see a lot of them, I wanna be, not to mix animal metaphors, but the canary in the coal mine to say, hey everybody, this is a huge problem for our bees. Uh, we need to do something about this from a policy level. So I am a worker bee person. Um, that is, can be at great detriment to society at large. You don't want me making all the decisions because I would probably sacrifice the hive to protect the bees and then we'd all be dead. There are some people who just like the queen bees and that's cool too. Um, there are, the other perspective of this is, you know, do you protect the hive? And yes, the hive, protecting the hive is crucial. It's not my perspective, it's not my passion, but equally crucial. And of course, you can't have a hive if you're not making the honey. So these are the different perspectives that people have and they're nuanced. And I would say that when you're talking to administration and hospitals about, about um, where to invest resources, there are people who say protect the hive and there are people who say protect the bees. And what you have to have is a very calm mind and uh, a good, um, not over just not this week. Okay. Oh, gotcha. Um, and not get too emotional about it because people who have a different perspective don't respond well to that. So you wanna be a voice and you wanna advocate and you have to understand that everybody's coming at it from a different perspective and all care about the health of the hive and the bees. They just have different slants on it. Okay, that's my disclaimer. I'm a bee person. Okay. So nobility is not an antonym of bias, okay? We can tend to think that because we're in emergency medicine and we do all this great work, that clearly we're not biased, but we are. We also, you know, we think about the system as benefiting from the illness of others. Um, and this is gonna be, this is really clear in COVID, right? Hospital loses a lot of money if you, if you stop doing elective procedures. Um, and you can say, well, they're just worried about their money, but I'll tell you what, we worry about our money too. In emergency medicine, we make a lot of money off people being sick. If people are well, if no one's violent, if no one makes bad driving decisions, we don't have jobs. So when we talk about the system and, and when we talk about money and all of these things, we have to be really careful to understand that we are part of the system that benefits greatly from, uh, um, from the illness and death of others. And that we have a lot of bias. We protect our patients. We wanna, we wanna speak for our patients and, and advocate for them. And we are biased in that. And there's some self-protection in that as well, which we have, to, we have to be really honest with ourselves about. So let's talk about viruses and discrimination and public health. This, is, this public service announcement came out because of concerns that people in different communities weren't going to take uh, public health messages about social distancing very seriously. 
sadly, uh, this has also become a poster of um, to demonstrate how blind society is to how discriminatory our healthcare system, our social economic system is towards people of color. So in one week you have all these PSAs saying, hey guys, viruses don't discriminate, viruses don't discriminate. And then the next week you are pounded with messages of, uh-oh, people are dying in much greater rates at, in different socioeconomic groups. So COVID doesn't discriminate. Is that true? Yes or no? What well, we've seen in the last week that this is obviously not true. Um, in the last four days now, the number of, of articles that have come out regarding the disparate effect of coronavirus on black communities is, is tragic. Um, in most large cities, Milwaukee, Chicago, in the state of Louisiana, um, in St. Louis, while the death, the percentage of deaths from COVID that are made up of uh, people of color is twice that of the representation in the population. So black people, people of color are gonna die from COVID at a much high, at a disproportionate rate. And the question is, what is going on? And you have conversations with, you know, I have conversations with people who do this kind of work a lot um, at the hospital level. And it's amazing to me that people still don't understand that it's not COVID, it is us. We have created the system um, and it is going to disparately affect people in communities of color. It is so hard to talk to you guys without seeing you or hearing you. I'm sorry if I'm not doing this very well. So then the question is who is more, who, what is a vulnerable population in in the era of COVID, can somebody can people just send me um, ideas? Who who do you think is vulnerable? Underserved and um, uninsured areas, rural areas. Underserved and rural areas. Yes, absolutely. Homeless what else? populations, people that have poor access to clean water for hand washing. Yep. Anyone who speaks another language. Yep. Anyone else? Incarcerated folks. Incarcerated folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone dependent on family for care. Absolutely. So you guys are, you guys hit most of them. So nursing homes, we know that that's, that's like the combination of all vulnerable, vulnerable traits, right? You're dependent on people, uh, you have poor health, you're at the extreme of age, um, people in jails, incarcerated people, great AJ, that's exactly what we're talking about, larger multi-generational households. People with chronic comorbidities are gonna be more vulnerable. People suffering from drug and alcohol addiction are gonna be more vulnerable. People who live in poverty, and people of color, and we're gonna talk about that separate because I think it's really easy to say, there's a socioeconomic reason here. Um, oh, thank you, Jess, for, for mental illness, absolutely. That people of color, well, they're, they have more chronic comorbidities, they're more living in poverty, that they're more, and it's very easy to discount all of the, all of the reasons why, they, why people of color are more vulnerable, and I would challenge 
you do keep that group separate uh, because we know from multiple in multiple areas of research that people of color even when you control for a lot of different factors including socioeconomics have um disparate levels of um, health and we can see that the best example of that in my mind is our maternal um, maternal morbidity and mortality after childbirth uh, the the disease the morbidity and mortality for women of color in this country is closer to that of a developed developing nation and that is after you control for socioeconomics and health so people of color in and of themselves are more vulnerable and we'll talk a little bit about that as well so why are these people more vulnerable and this is the part that when you talk to people at the health system level it's really interesting to hear their perspectives or their lack of understanding of why people are more vulnerable. One is increased exposure. Essential jobs, right? So all the people who can't just sit at home and work on their computers um, and do Zoom meetings, but who have to go to Target and work and see everybody who walks in, that is increased exposure. You live in more dense neighborhoods, uh, dependency on public transportation, uh, increased density within a single dwelling and multiple generations living uh, living with and depending on each other. That can that's culturally very helpful to have to live in multi generational homes. That's one of the but it's also one of the reasons why Italy has had such a Italy, one of the reasons why Italy has had such a devastating outcome is multiple generations living in the same home. Um, in addition to having a large older population, one can also argue that popul that pollution is factors into that as well, um, especially when it comes to um, sorry, uh, Italy, multiple generations living in a house. Okay, I had something there, but I forgot it because I was reading chat. Sorry, um, but these are this is this is huge, and so when you're and again, I want you to always think about this in in the context of what are you going to do as a healthcare system or as what I would call it, a disease-managed system um, to, to influence this, what can you possibly do? So why are people more vulnerable? Higher risk of comorbidities. The list that I showed you, being incarcerated, uh, being a person of color, being uh, having mental illness, substance abuse, you have higher risk of comorbidity, that's true. But let's also be honest that it's not just that you have them, it's that they're not well controlled. And now I want you to take the concept of let's let's move out of like what I call victim blaming, people not taking care of themselves, not taking responsibility for themselves, all these sorts of things, and look at why are comorbidities more poorly controlled? Poor food quality, lack of access to good quality, high value nutritional food. Systemic racism is a huge part of that with increased social stress and stigma. This is part of the reason why we think maternal mortality is higher for, for women of color. Um, lack of reliable access to healthcare. And a big one is healthcare avoidance and fear. Um, if you look at the um, Hispanic Latino population, you think about an undocumented population. Um, how much are you going to engage with a healthcare system? Um, are you worried that if you do so and you accidentally take advantage of a program, is that going to make you get deported? All of these things, um, in addition to the fact that our healthcare, we still have not just disparate health in our community, but disparate health care. Um, 
we're not the only ones who know that. People who live in these communities are very aware that they get received disparate healthcare and which causes you to avoid it. And, um, and which means that comorbidities are more poorly controlled. You have decreased engagement. And then general inability to financially manage comorbidities. So you think of, uh, boy, if you could just exercise, your diabetes would be in better control. Okay, well, how am I gonna do that exactly? I live in a, uh, an apartment where there's uh, violence around me and drugs and I can't go just take a walk when I need to get some exercise. Um, so there's a financial management of comorbidities. I don't know whether or not I can buy, buy dinner for my family or get my hypertensive medications. These are very real decisions that are faced uh, by our families every day. So comorbidities in vulnerable populations are more poorly controlled, which is just fuel for a virus. Um, social isolation is going to be a big problem for, for these populations as well. If you start off vulnerable, um, all you need to do is put into people's minds that <laughs> there's a pandemic and all of a sudden you've become increasingly isolated, which is going to worsen your comorbidities. It's going to worsen your ability to manage a viral infection if you have one. Okay, so then we talk about the higher risk of worse outcomes, even if you don't have a healthcare label. So again, this is the, well, people of color tend to be disproportionately affected by hypertension, disproportionately affected by diabetes. And those are the people we know about, but there, there are people without a healthcare label um, that have worse outcomes. Again, I refer, I refer back again to maternal mortality because these are young, healthy people uh, that have worse outcomes. And why is that? And it's the same things, it's air quality, um, if you look back to the GI Bill and how we redlined mortgage, who could get mortgages for what area, people of color have been pushed into areas where there is worse air quality, higher levels of pollution, worse water quality. And if you look at the Charlotte-Mecklenburg maps, we are no different from that. So uh, if you think about why did Italy get struck so hard and why did China get struck so hard and is there a, a pollution perspective to that or a climate change or all these things, these communities are much more vulnerable um, to those uh, poor environmental qualities. Um, increased stress is a huge part of it. Uh, we all know that uh, people who are living under constant stress have poor health, um, and so vulnerable communities are have a stacked risks around this. Um, isolation is a huge one. So I will tell you that part of this week I spent uh, talking to people. Atrium really wanted to release a heat map of where COVID is happening within our community. And this was a heated discussion of who should have access to where cases are being found. And what we decided, thankfully, was not to release a heat map. And you think, well, is that a really good from a public health standpoint? Because shouldn't people be aware of where, if you live in a high risk area, shouldn't you be able to know it? And the challenge is, is that we know where the hotspots are because they are the hotspots for everything else that we've seen. And COVID's no different. It's just like every other health problem we've seen. Um, it's, it is going to go after vulnerable communities. And if you put that map out there, it's going to do two things from a public health standpoint. One is it's going to increase isolation and marginalization and stigma of the disease and the people. And it's going to falsely reassure people, affluent people who live in more dispersed neighborhoods, that they are safe. And so for those reasons, the county stopped releasing zip code data many weeks ago, and Atrium has decided not to release 
hot their hot heat maps for COVID. Um, now, but keep in, it's really important to keep in mind though that they are highly aware of them and are targeting interventions, secondary intervention plans for those people. I mean, the, the amount of focus on this is very, very high. So despite the fact that, you know, you're gonna hear some aspects of conversations that sound kind of negative, that there is an insane amount of, of force and will on the part of the system being put behind how do we keep all of Charlotte safe from this? And how do we specifically protect vulnerable communities? Um, so I'm gonna share with you some of the, the pitfalls and some of the issues that come up, but please don't ever think that there's a room full of people who don't care about vulnerable populations because this is a this has been pr probably 40 hours of meetings in the last three days around this topic feels like. Okay, so living in isolation, do you, can you isolate yourself? These are pictures of how people actually live. And I know we know this kind of on a surface level, but we don't really, I don't know if we spend a lot of time imagining what life is like when you're living in a one bedroom apartment with your entire family. Um, the picture on the upper left is a New York apartment where four unrelated adults live in 500 square feet and their living room is also their kitchen, which seems fantastic for, uh, if you're a virus, you're pretty happy about seeing that. Uh, the picture on the bottom right is actually a North Carolina migrant work farm, um, mostly in the eastern part of the states where all the beautiful crops and the tobacco come from. Uh, we have migrant workers that live in um, pretty much mobile homes and sleep in these sort of arrangements. Um, they have children who attend schools who are completely bilingual and they have adults who are um, usually have low levels of education and are living in very close quarters without access to sanitation. So we think about the urban aspect of this, but we also need to think of the rural aspect of this. And while we are worried about surges by volume, they are worried about surges, not necessarily by volume, the, the volumes aren't gonna be as bad, but their resources are so much more limited than to what we have in Charlotte itself. And then this is a, this is again, what it's like to live in a one room apartment uh, or a two room apartment with another family. This is your bedroom that you share with your two children. And that's your laundry down there where you keep your clothes. And if you say, hey, we really need you to socially isolate yourself in your household. Uh, we have to understand that that's gonna be met with some nods and smiles. Um, you know, in my beautiful Cotswoldian home, my life of privilege, I can just toddle on off to the guest room. Uh, but that is not an option for many, many of our families. And, and we have to be really aware of that uh, because it means that if we have someone who comes into our emergency department and we're worried about COVID, we need to know who is living with them. How are they living? And what are we gonna do to help the people that they live with from infecting somebody who's vulnerable? If you look at these pictures, none of the people in these pictures are particularly vulnerable by comorbidity, by um, age, but many, but this doesn't showing any of the multi-generational living situations, which a lot of our families live with. Um, it doesn't reflect the childcare aspect of things. So you work at Target and your mom, grandma raises the kids. She has poorly controlled diabetes and hypertension um, and you get COVID. What on earth are you going to do? Because you can't, you live in very close quarters. What can we do with grandma? Can we get her out of there? Um, 
and then how are you going to take care of your kids when you're down and out with COVID? It's hard for people with, with means to do this. It's nearly impossible for someone without means. So these are the th things, these are the conversations that are happening at a broad level to say, how are we going to, what can we do? We know that once people get infected, the comorbidities, the systemic racism, the structural inequalities are going to lead to higher mortality. And once that infection happens, no matter what a health system does, we're not going to have a huge effect on that besides encouraging people to engage with us through every step of their care. But it's probably that ship has kind of already sailed. And so the, so what we're really talking about is secondary prevention. And I'm going to go through a little bit of that in a public health model and, and what a health system is designed to do and what a public health model is designed to do and how they collide. So where we're seeing hotspots, this is a census 2010 map of Mecklenburg. It's not surprising that we have these population hotspots. I want you to pay close attention to the dark blue on the map because that's, if you want to know where our hot, if you're really curious as to whether our hotspots are, just look at where the people live. Um, now we are seeing that we are having more, you've probably seen in the news and the sh local news that we are having the, the number of people testing positive is disproportionately in the population of people of color. Um, this is going to shock nobody on this call, but people of color are testing more. We have more positive tests, but white people are getting tested more often, um, which makes absolute sense. As you can imagine, where have we put our testing centers? We've put them in geographic areas, not necessarily in population density areas or in areas um, with high comorbidities, just like we've planted our hospitals. Um, we have, in order to get a COVID test, uh, we have, you have to have a doctor's order. And the system is very proud of all of the virtual work it's done but I'm not sure if you know this or not, but you can get a free nursing call if you know the number and you have a phone and you can make a lot of calls, you can call the nursing number and do a system watch and then they will tell you that you need a virtual care. For virtual care, you need a data plan, you need an app, you need a phone that can do the app, you need the wherewithal to do the phone, to have the phone and work the app, and you need $25. Now there are community clinics in our system that are waiving the virtual fee. People, community clinics in our system have gotten very creative. They're doing even, don't, I'm sure this is not to be shared, but so, but no, it actually probably is. So they're trying, trying to find all these different ways to, to reach populations, including can we Zoom? Can we just check in with you? Um, there's a great podcast that I'll send out to everyone that Ifia Sunquo is doing with her sickle cell. <laughs> I know it's gonna be shared, it's cool. Uh, that Ipia Sunquo had about how she is managing population and her sickle cell population, and it's beautiful. It's, it's, we are reaching out to all of our sickle cell patients as often as we can. We are setting up webinars. We are setting up group meetings, all of these things to keep people from feeling isolated and to make sure that they are reaching out before people get sick, to decrease the isolation, decrease the stigma, and, and improve um, surveillance of the of a male population. Okay, so this is what happens when a pandemic collides with a disease management system. What's missing here is public health. And um, what's interesting in, we, in all these calls is that there are, there are a few people who have a public health background, but it's actually not that many. 
And I think what's happened here and what, we, what we're going to increasingly see articles and opinions about is that we do not have the public health infrastructure to do primary prevention work. And what do I mean by that? Public health model of prevention has different levels. It starts with sort of what I would call primordial prevention, which is um, making sure that our economic policies and social policies are good for health. Primary prevention is the one that's, that is, and these, all these, as, they, as you go up, you, you kind of have less of an effect on a population. Um, so the big ones are policy. Next, you have uh, targeting risk policies around targeting risk factors, vaccines, safety belt laws. Um, if you think about primordial prevention, you could think about environmental factors. Um, primary prevention is, you know, taking smoking out of restaurants decreases annual heart attacks by some percentage. So that's all primary prevention. That's not really a hospital system. We are really, we are decent getting better at secondary prevention where we are can say, oop, you're exposed, but you're still preclinical. Not great, right? But we do surveillance and things on, on people who have high risk. I think of our sexually transmitted infection surveillance that we do in the emergency department. That's sort of our secondary prevention. And I think the emergency department is uniquely geared towards addressing these things and to also feeding back into the hospital and to the public health sector where we are seeing, um, where we have opportunities to, to uh, intercede with this. And then tertiary prevention is what do you do once people have already been sick? Now what's interesting about this is the, the triangle uh, comes to a point because of the, the amount of benefit that you get from each of these things, right? So huge bang for your buck, population-wise from primordial prevention, tertiary prevention, not quite as much. If you look at where we spend our healthcare dollars, we spend a ton right between secondary and tertiary, and that's where, a, that's where atrium health lies. That's where we are, which is treating the problem once it already happens. And um, we, that is not a system fault. That is, that is not a health system's fault. That is a, that's just how our entire country has disallocated resources. And as I like to say, don't hate the player, change the game. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying blow it up. Um, I'm just saying we are probably overly skewed right now to the secondary tertiary prevention. And it takes something like this to make us realize we need to skew back a little bit, put more efforts into primary and secondary prevention uh, before people get sick. So what the heck are we doing? Um, so pre-COVID, I want to let you know that the system does a lot with social determinants of health that are pretty amazing. For people who get admitted, there's a whole army of people that reaches out to them and asks them very granular questions about how they get access to health care, how can they can get their medications, how do they have transportation. The amount of Uber and Lyft rides that the system provides is incredible. We, we see where things fall apart in the emergency department, but the system does amazing work in figuring out what people need and how to get them to services. They're very connected with the uh, community at large and where they can send patients. It's pretty amazing. Um, so knowing exactly where the hotspots are are key. And then they have to figure out, well, what are we gonna do about it? How, so we, we know an area that's a hotspot. How do we intervene? What do we do? What is the county doing? Um, how do we 
how do we do this? And how do we do it, by the way, this week? Because this week is when we can prevent people from getting sick. One interesting conversation that's come up is testing. And should we be testing uh, communities that are more highly affected more? Um, right now, we are, we are testing a lot of people who are well, who are um, going to our, dri our drive up sites. And that's great. The challenge is we don't have unlimited testing. So this is an argument that goes back and forth and it's really interesting. I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts or type them in as to, should we be disproportionately testing at risk communities? Um, and that's, that's a tough one because it would be great, except we don't have, we don't have unlimited testing. So does anyone have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I certainly think that would be ideal. It's tough with the current testing. I can tell you one concern I have is I, I saw, I've been virtual provider on pavement twice this week, and I saw two patients on, on Monday, or yeah, on Monday and then again on Wednesday that both tested negative. They were in higher risk populations um, and they were sent back when they contacted their primary care provider and said that they had um, persistent symptoms, but had a negative test. And so it's, it's tough because even when we like try and coordinate outpatient stuff and have them you know, follow up there, like even if they were able to coordinate in it, they get bounced back. And so we're, it's tough. I, I agree that we don't have enough tests, but then we're being asked to test people twice because the clinics that they have access to are not willing to, to see even when they're there. So, uh, so it's, this is an interesting part. Um, it's an interesting thing. So what's it, when you ask about the sensitivity of the test, I think that it, it's highly sensitive, probably if you are infected enough and we do the test correctly. So the sensitivity of the test that we know is, is not necessarily how it works de facto, it's more how it works de jure, right? So it's, if you have an ideal swab, and if you have a virus, can it detect the virus? Yes, but you have to swab the virus correctly. And I'm not sure if we're, I mean, I'm sure the testing sites are doing it well. I'm sure we're even doing it well, but we also know is that strep testing is very um, tester dependent in terms of its sensitivity. Uh, so, Yes, the one, one argument that, that I have made is we're spending a lot of money on testing. And the question is, does it really matter? We already know that COVID is here. Does it matter if I test you or not? Now, some people would argue that we have eroded trust with some of our communities so much that if we aren't able to say your test is positive, people aren't gonna believe us. But, and that's, that's a valid concern. At the same time, we know it's here. If it looks like a duck, talks like a duck, as Dr. Passaretti said, do we need a test for it? Um, kind of like, do we need a flu test? And so the question is not, from, from a testing perspective, a test does nothing for me or the patient. If one, I have nothing to offer either of them, or two, I can't grab the people who I think are positive, even if they're test, regardless of their test result. And so what we have instituted this week, which I think we need to really harp on, is that if you think they are COVID positive by the fact that they've had a positive exposure, 
They have all of the things that we associate with COVID. You do not have to do a test. You can say, and I'm going to go into this. You can say, I, they are presumed. Um, this is a presumed COVID positive person. This is their care level. And we're going to talk about that too. The system now has their arms around them and they have follow-up and a whole triage system that I'm going to talk about here in a second that does not require you to have a COVID test. Um, so, but I will still say that we are stuck in secondary intervention, which is fine. That might just be our lane. We need to be reaching out to patients. The care level is crucial. So when you say, if you do a COVID test and it's positive and you put in the care level, I, it, I wanna bang my head against the wall when people say, oh, I just put in a number. This, this number has tremendous importance for what kind of surveillance Atrium provides for them. They are calling every single person that has a positive COVID test back. They are put in red, yellow, green triage levels. They are either getting contacted, oh, okay, sounds like you're doing pretty good. Um, let's call you back in two or three days. Or, hmm, sounds like you might need me to call you tomorrow. Or I need to call you twice a day and see how you're doing. And that is the level of care that they're providing. Um, it, with these callbacks. And so care level is crucial. Care level starts you in that triage path. So it's a little bit tedious, but please put it in. Now our care level can be associated with a presumed positive. So if you go to your, and I'm gonna show you the, the visual, if you go into your, into your chart and you hit COVID testing, you put care level and you say presumed positive, they are treated just like a positive test. So please, please, please do that. Uh, don't write off the care level. Uh, this is what this is what is going to help us. Um, this is what's going to help us prevent secondary uh, exposures. Uh, they have they are talking about how to get in go into neighborhoods in a culturally appropriate way. So just driving a big atrium van around with a megaphone saying socially isolate yourself doesn't really inspire a lot of trust. So it's who in these neighborhoods has trust? Who can we reach out to? Who can interact with our neighbors and really help solve? problems at the at a boots on the ground level. And then PCPs, I know we talk about the clinics sending patients to us, but they are they are doing some phenomenal work with reaching out to their own patient panels un, unprovoked and making sure that they have what they need. We're talking about how to make sure people have their chronic disease management occur. Um, chronic disease managed without coming in. Can I can we how do we figure out how to get you meds, all of these things. So um, we, we again need to, to understand that there's a lot being done. Where we see is where it fails, but there is a huge concerted effort to help people um, manage this outbreak. So what can we do again? We need to educate. I highly recommend going to the CDC website at the start of your shift. There are a ton of really great handouts in English and Spanish written in um, you know, English for, for the majority of people. Um, that the level of English uh, for your education level that is readable by most people um, about how to how to take care of a COVID person, which is really amazing. We should be sending everybody out with this. It's how to keep your, how to do their laundry, how to clean their bathroom, how to get them food, um, and without exposing yourself. What are the things that you need? And then the hospital can then uh, follow up and see. They're looking into ways as to how they can help provide some of the things that one needs to. Uh, take care of a COVID patient. Again, keep in mind that that doesn't come with any reimbursement. So, and you, ha you have to understand that they are 
the, the system as a whole, the individuals who work at the system are highly motivated to go help this community. And it's gonna come at a huge financial cost because the harsh reality is people in the ICU on ventilators pay us a lot more money than reaching out and preventing people from getting COVID. And that's not Atrium's issue. That is, that is all of our issue that we need to come to grips with. We need to identify people. We need to identify who lives in their house and do they have at-risk people. And we can ask some secondary prevention questions because we need for people to understand that, um, that these things are really, really important. You need to be able to isolate. Is there a single room in the house where the people who are sick can stay? Do you have cleaning supplies? Do you have bleach? Is there anyone fragile in your home? The system is looking at a lot of really creative ways to help isolate people um, if they get sick or isolate people who are well but fragile if they have a sick contact at home. That's not available yet. They're still trying to figure that out. But again, there's a lot of motivation here. So I go back to saying, please, 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 if you do the COVID test, put in the care level and then just click suspected COVID-19 and they will get the same atrium tree arms around you um, that if you had a positive COVID. So we have an important role to play in the emergency department secondary prevention. Atrium is trying really hard to figure this out. Public health is, a, is grassroots and we are definitively a tree, right? So if you could think about it that way, we, there's, there's just things we can do and things we can't. Um, but we're working really hard to figure out how to decrease infection and in to begin with and how to, decrease, how to decrease morbidity and mortality and that very heightened awareness that people who have been bared the brunt of all of the systemic issues that provide inequities in our society are going to be brought to bear with COVID. And this is an opportunity to, to show people how much inequity we really have. And we cannot let that, we cannot let that go to waste. So I would love for you to have, if you have any ideas, um, if you have anything to, to add or say, please say it. I'm happy to take ideas up. I have conversations with people who, who can make decisions. So, so bring them to me. Emily, I just have to say that this was just an outstanding and well-timed talk, um, really informative and it just highlights all the issues that we already have in our healthcare system. I think COVID is, is just um, highlighting all the problems that we have. So thanks so much for putting this into the, to, um, our forefront. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. CMC out.